Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 104 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. We are here on a cool November evening, the eve of the eve of Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. I'm down here in the Vomitorium, Vomitorium South, the bunker, with my good friend and fabulous co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing well, but you made the mistake I made last week. You didn't even say your own name. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What is it again? You are Dr. David Noe. That's correct. Okay. Thanks. Now there we, we go. Now that we have that straight, I'm feeling I'm feeling good tonight. Excellent. Yep. Like we had a little bit of a break from the, the torrential um, downpour of snow that yes. we had. Yes. Yeah. 25 inches. Is that what it was? Or as they say in Canada, 63 and a half centimeters. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Record snowfall. We were only bested here in the Midwest by the Buffalonians. The buff oh, it's worse in, in Buffalo Did right you now? know they got over three feet of snow? Oh, goodness. Yeah, they can't uh, dig out at all. Wow. Man, I did not hear that. I didn't mm -hmm. even hear that. Uh, I mean, 25 inches. I, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was that yeah, bad. Yeah, I hear the uh, the mayor of Buffalo released a whole pack of St. Bernard's. They're just crawling around the neighborhood with their little barrels underneath. Those are the casts on, their, That's on their, right. their collars, right? With a little, what is it, gin or something in there to yeah, revive to the warm frozen? Up. Right. Yeah. If, if uh, Warner Brothers cartoons taught me anything. That's and they taught me practically everything I know. <laughs> That's right. So there we go. So what are we doing this evening? I have no idea. Oh, come on. Truth, right? we're, we're doing something we're topical, yeah. seasonal. Thanksgiving-ish. Excellent. Yeah. And, cool. I, and I rarely say this because yeah. you know how I feel about the E word. Yes. I'm excited about this episode. You are. Very much. That it almost never happens. I know. Yeah. I'm a consistent meh, as yeah. we learned a couple uh, episodes ago. Or if, if you are excited, it's it's usually tempered with some, you're lowering, you're lowering expectations. That's correct. Right? But you're feeling above the bar tonight? That's correct. All right. I'm, I'm excited by this. I've muscled up above the bar because this is epic. Mm -hmm. But in quite a different strain than what we've been dealing with thus far with Virgil. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is very true. Yeah. So we're going to be looking at one of the first epic poems that's describing the uh, newly discovered continent from the perspective of Europeans, of course, mm -hmm. of uh, North America. Excellent. And uh, Nova Anglia, in particular, New England. Okay. And uh, I think there's so much richness in this little poem that we may actually have to devote two episodes to it. Really? I, I don't know. We'll just see how it goes. See, see how far we get tonight? Right. So this is this is an epic poem about New England? Correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating read. Uh, listener, Jeff's pretending here that he hasn't done any of his homework. I've, I've done nothing. Right. <laughs> this <laughs> well, is Dave's episode. Well, we'll see about that. All right. Yeah. All right, all right. So first we have to get through some Corrigenda. We do? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, who screwed up? Uh, well, I did mostly. Okay. Uh, but mostly you. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, I was trying to quote that line because it was snowing, remember? Yeah. That line from the famous poem, The Night Before Christmas. Right, right, right. And I think what I said was, the moon on the crust of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midnight to objects below. And that's not quite right. That's 0 for 2. Oh, really? <laughs> I was wrong on two counts. What is it? It's the moon on the crest okay. of the new fallen snow. And I think I can be given, I, I can be forgiven for that one. Gave the luster of midday. And you know, I was oh, okay. kind of bothered by it even when I said it because I don't think midnight has any luster. No, it's no. lusterless. Oh, exactly. Right. 
It's a lackluster. The idea is the bright moon kind of gives the the semblance of midday That's in right. the dead of night. To objects below. Yes. It's told from the perspective of Santa Claus. Okay. So if you like that poem, The Night Before Christmas, or Twas the Night Before Christmas to get the first name in, yeah. the prinomen, uh, that's the correct rendering. Gotcha. Right. Now, this, uh, this reminded me of a a meme my oldest mm-hmm. son sent me today, right? Yeah. Um, we, we were talking about this is going to be a Thanksgiving-themed episode. Okay. Which we're already so talk- he was in on it. But we're already talking about Christmas. Yes. And so this is about, you know, how how stores, like after Halloween, they they shove out the Christmas stuff, you mm-hmm. know, and Thanksgiving kind of gets lost. Right. It's not a very commercial holiday. You right? can't do much with Thanksgiving. No. There, there isn't an undertone of avarice. You don't send a Thanksgiving Day card to, to family you don't? friends. Well, I, I don't. Okay. I once got one from a, a realtor we used, which I thought was really <laughs> weird, right? Or the dentist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you get one of those from the dentist? The dentist or your Thanksgiving finan- Day card. Your financial guy, mm-hmm. right? Got some turkey stuck in there. Yeah. See you tomorrow. But this meme that my son sent me, um, there was a big inflatable turkey that was sitting on a prone Santa Claus <laughs> with a sign in his hand that said, wait your turn, fat boy. Ah, and I like nice, that. Nice, yeah. Yeah, nice. So, just, just the right amount of edge. Exactly. Okay. Oh, and more, more another Corrigendum we have? That's correct. Okay. This is the bust of Thalia. Remember, we were talking last time about the muses because yeah, yeah. Uh, that was... Um, Apropos of um, book seven of the Iliad, the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I was mentioning this marble bust of Thalia, the muse of comedy, and uh, how beautiful this particular bust is. And you asked me, Dave, where is it? Where is it? And yeah. I had almost no information about it. Okay. So I don't know if this is so much um, counts as a corregendum as it is filling a lacuna. Gotcha. Okay. Do you remember when you first learned the word lacuna when I you do. were in grad school? I do remember that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was fascinating. Right. And and I remember it was in a class where I realized the lacuna uh, in much of my undergraduate education. Right. <laughs> it was all gaping holes. <laughs> it was like huge gaping holes. Right. right. Someone fill these, right? And <laughs> right. then uh, we rejoiced. It was kind of like a lacuna matata, right? Oh, very nicely yeah. done. So uh, this particular bust uh, is in the Vatican Museum. That's where I've seen it. Gotcha. Yeah, and I'm sure you have seen it there as well. I'm sure. Now, do you know which room it's in? Because the, I mean, how uh, many? Now, Jeff, why do you have to ask that? Because <laughs> now I got to go look that up. Right. And next week, I got to bring back another Corrigendum. Well, you know the, how that museum is. It's it's yes. it's a hall of heads after mm-hmm. hall of heads. Yeah, some parts of it are even blocked off, as though just to kind of taunt you by saying, "Look, we have so much stuff. We don't even have to show you most of it." Exactly. Right. We can just we can put up a couple of orange cones here. That's and correct. Just say, keep hey, out. Yeah. Keep out. Yeah. Yep. So it is the reproduction of a late, I'm sorry, of a second century Roman original mm-hmm. that resembles Greek models of the late fourth to early third century BC. Uh, and so it was mostly, uh, most likely bronze. And then, of course, the Romans copied it in marble. Yeah. And uh, now we have uh, this replica. Very nice. It's very, you have, of course, the listener can't see this, but the, the reproduction you have on the sheet here, it, it's, a, it's a very lovely statue. It is, isn't it's, it? It's very, it's very, uh, it's very nice. You yes. would expect, you'd expect the... Um, you know, the, the statue of Thalia comedy to be winsome, I think. And yes. Who she, doesn't like to laugh? She looks a little, she looks a little, um, too composed to yes, be but a, 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 a muse of comedy. I, but, maybe so, but notice the tiny little smile that's playing about her lips. Do you see that? I do. Yeah. She's about to say something funny, I think. I can see that. I or can inspire see that. someone yeah. else. Third corrigendum. What do we got? Yeah. So someday the episode is just going to be entirely corrigenda, <laughs> right? I said that the preferred term in Latin for pizza. Yeah. First I said, I used to call it panis neapolitanus. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is, um, you know, Naples bread. Right. Just like a bagel is sometimes called Pontus Judaicus. Oh, the, the, Jewish, the bread. Jewish bread. Yeah. Right. And then I said, no, it's actually placentia. Uh-uh, that was wrong too. Okay. It's placenta. Placenta. Okay. Placenta you were... Neapolitana. 
La Quinta. Yep. I was off by a single letter. Yeah, that's not too bad. Not too bad. But what, what is it? The Plaquenta, I'm not even, where, where's that even coming um, from? It's what is a that? large flat thing, basically. La, okay. Okay. That's right. the idea. <laughs> All right. So now we're on to the shout out. Oh, man. What a shout out this is. Oh, my this goodness. Is. So yeah. this comes from one Thomas Flynn. And apparently, not only is this a shout out, but it's a little bit of a... Um, little bit of a bone to pick. Why don't you read the first part, yes. please? Yes. Umbridge was taken. Yes. Yes. So um, he writes, imagine my horror when I heard you say in the latest episode that you have no shout out. Wait, can I, can you read the part in parentheses too? Because this was a little <laughs> bit unnerving. <laughs> when I heard you say in the latest, the latest episode, number 103 at five minutes, 56 seconds. Yeah. I was a little disappointed <laughs> that he didn't include like a fraction of a second. Come on, Thomas, be precise. Oh, right, right. And then I realized, oh, people are out there writing things down. Man. Yeah, exactly. That's a frightening. That anyway. is a frightening idea. Says, Could it be that the following email, most of which I already sent on the 26th of September, has disappeared? Yes. So he had sent us right. um, a couple of months ago. And I'd like to blame you. I think you forgot this one. This is probably true. No. Yeah. We already know that he's not an Americano because uh, he puts the number before the the month. Right. On 26 September. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So I'm looking. I mean, he's he's an he's an Aussie, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, all of these references to didgeridoos and right and, and the band Men at Work. It's a, a, the baby eating your dingo. Right, and so exactly. forth. That's right. right, right. But this is an incredible shout out. Could you read the first paragraph? Yes. He says, "I've been listening to your podcast since episode 14." So he apparently skipped one through 13. I don't know. I have a little bone to pick with Thomas. Okay. Cicero Falls at Formii. Formii. That's number 14. Yep. December 7. It was uh, released December 7 of 2020. Yes. Uh, He says, I quickly caught up on all the previous ones. Sorry, I jumped the gun. I did enjoy the Odyssey episodes, but my favorite has been episode 89, Dirges for Dead Dido. Interesting. Um, I look forward to a future episode or two or three on Apuleius. Now this guy's talking my language. Yeah, he's buttering you up. He is. I am probably never going to read his Metamorphoses. What? But I do wonder the extent to which the narrator's religious experience is meant to be taken seriously. In That's fact, a good question, isn't it? It is. Yeah. In fact, I especially like the episodes on cl- classical topics I know nothing about. Mm. I d- devoted a whole chapter of my dissertation on the seriousness of, of Apuleius's uh, take on religion. Fascinating. Yeah. We'll have to take a look at that. Mm-hmm. You want to you uh, pick sure. it up? Sure. And Thomas says, I started classical languages at school when I was 10. Wow, I, yeah. I admire that. Read classics at Oxford. Wow. And for... One reason and another moved to Sydney more than 15 years ago, where I now teach Latin and Greek at Campion College, named after the great Latinist, praised as such by Elizabeth, and martyr St. Edmund Campion. I like this guy. I think, so I, I, don't, I don't think he's an Aussie by birth. I think it sounds like he might be a Brit mm-hmm. and, and then moved to Australia. Anybody that can't spell theater, right? <laughs> T-R-E. Yeah, right. I lump them all together. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in Canada, they can't either. <laughs> if I had my druthers and I had to do classics, I would spend all my working days reading Homer and Plato. That's Man. great. Man. So I am definitely more on the Greek side, he says, but I teach Latin, which is definitely more popular. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? I want to um, I want to go on to just one more thing here. Yeah. Uh, he says, at some point, Dave suggested that Thomas Aquinas' Latin is serviceable, not but not elegant. Did you say that? I think I insisted. <laughs> I don't think I just suggested. I think I was quite clear right. that uh, Aquinas's Latin is perfect for what it it's, uh, needs to do, what it seeks to do. Yeah. But it has no beauty or charm that we should desire it. Okay. And he says, may I suggest Aquinas's hymn to the Black, it's, uh, Blessed Sacrament, excuse me, composed for the office of Corpus Christi. And then he gives us a lot of additional 
helpful immaterial. I would say how many pages here, Jeff? Shuffle the pages a little bit. Man, it, it goes it goes on. Right. It goes on. We we and um, alas, we don't have time to address it all. We don't. But um, you were saying, yeah. right, that he includes some excellent ideas for future topics. Yes, I like it. It's a, it's a nice variety of uh, of uh, ideas mm-hmm. of corners of the of the classes. He he suggests you know why not tackle the the odder corners of Euripides? Right, his Ion, his Helen, his Orestes. And Isn't that sharp? That's a great idea. Here's another good one. Yeah, the language of Augustine's conversion, Confessions, Book Eight. Mm. I like that. That'd be great. Very much, and. Uh, Thomas, I think we must say this is probably a little bit, um, what's the word, reckless. He suggests that we tackle the movie Gladiator yeah. versus history. Yeah. And I say it's reckless because we tried that with the movie Troy, more bods than gods, yeah. and it was kind of a dud. But you know what? I think he might be onto something. Though, cause I okay. Think, I think um, infinitely more people have seen Gladiator than they saw Troy. You really think I so? I do, without okay. a doubt, right? All right. And so and I think there's a lot to talk about there. And right. some interesting, interesting uh, stuff. Yeah. Well, so to wrap this up, thank you, Thomas, for yeah. listening. Thanks for carrying the torch aloft there, way down under, in your teaching of Latin and Greek. Uh, thank you for the excellent ideas you've provided us with for future topics. We will steal them shamelessly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, Dave. Let's get down to um, what we're talking about tonight. Yeah. And so we're talking this. Uh, you were you mentioned at the top of the episode this um, lengthy uh, epic poem, correct? Written um, about New England. And uh, who's who's our author here, and, and what do we know about him? The gentleman's name is William Morell, mm-hmm. and uh, he was born sometime after 1590, and he died sometime after 1626. So he did not live a very long life. No, he did not. Okay. Right. So this is sometime uh, late 16th, early 17th century. Received his Bachelor of Arts from Magdalen College in Cambridge, 1650. Uh, 15, excuse me. Uh, so not like our friend Thomas Flynn, who went to Oxford. This guy's a Cambridge man. Okay. May 23rd and 24th, 1619, Morell was ordained as a deacon and priest uh, at Peterborough. And in 1623, after receiving a commission by the ecclesiastical court to oversee and administer any churches which already or might be instituted in the, in the new colonies, Morell accompanied the English Navy captain Robert Georges to New England, who was tasked with assisting the establishment of the short-lived Wessagusset Colony in present-day Weymouth. Weymouth, is that in Massachusetts? Massachusetts, okay. yep. The colony was abandoned in the next year, the spring of 1624, due to financial difficulties and tensions with the natives. Hmm. Robert Georges served as Governor General of New England between 1623 and 1624, and Georges returned to England in 1624, but Morell remained behind in Plymouth for one more year to learn more about New England. So that's our author, William Morell. Okay. These two poems are the fruits of his observations. They were published in 1625, so just a year later, by John Dawson. These writings make it clear that Morell was an able classical scholar. He frequently peppers his English with Latin maxims reminiscent of Virgil and Apuleius, and he employs numerous references to classical mythological figures and events. Very interesting. And I also found, and I'm sure that the the author whom we're quoting, a man named Andrew Gaudio, uh, who put this together. It's freely available online. It's published by the Library of Congress, June 2019. Uh, Gaudio noticed some of these Virgilian and Apollaean references. I caught a couple of Lucretius uh, as I was oh, going really? through it. For yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep. And uh, likely some Ovid as well. Excellent. Excellent. Great. So that's the guy. Okay. And so um, you, you, you note here on the, on the notes here, uh, the front plate right. of, of the... Uh, this is something added by Gaudio, or this is something from from uh, uh, Morel? I think it's Morel. Okay. Yep. All right. And it's the Latin expression, sat breve, si sat bene. 
which means uh, it's good enough if it's short enough. Oh, I like that. Basically, it's kind of another of the the big book, uh, big evil. That's correct. Maxim of the uh, yeah. Of the, uh, um, from the uh, like Callimachus. Callimachus right. and the Alexandrians. There right? we go. Yeah. So the whole title of this work is New England, or a brief narration. That's a word that might need some uh, definition. So we're familiar with narration, but there's another Latin word, enardro, which means to tell completely. Right. Okay. So there used to be an English word, narration. Mm. I'm sure that we don't use that very often. No. Have no, you no, used that no. one today? I've never used that word in my life. See yep. if you can drop that on Thanksgiving. I, I will do that. I don't <laughs> want to stir up trouble around the table, though. i to so, keep the peace. A brief narration of the air, earth, water, fish, and fowls of that country, with a description of the natures, orders, habits, and religion of the natives, in Latin and English verse. London, 1625, William Morell. All right, now... Um, being a translator of, right. of of works from you do a lot, you've done a lot of translative works from around this era. That's and, right, and, and slightly, slightly before, um, and this is an era of of Latin I know very little about. Mm-hmm. So, is this a fairly typical kind of thing that people were, were writing? Oh and, yes, who, who would have been the audience for something like this? Right. Well, that's a little harder to know for sure. Well, I mean, is it coming from? So the he's writing this a couple of years after the arrival of the Mayflower, right? Correct. Twenty. Yep. And so maybe he's tapping into kind of this fascination with this, this strange new world. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Right. And the uh, ongoing British effort to colonize, you know, this part of the continent called New England. Yeah. And uh, what, when was Jamestown? 1607, I think? Something like that, yeah. Right. So it's only been a couple of decades that there has been a, a consistent, sustained English presence right. on this continent. And so uh, typical education of the time for uh, a guy like Morel, you know, start uh, Latin when you're 10, 11 years old and study really nothing but Latin and Greek for four to five years. Yeah. Just in, in great depth. Starting out with prose. Um, once you've learned some basics of grammar, you know, with a bunch of other boys your age, uh, being punished if you make mistakes. Harshly. <laughs> harshly, typically harshly. <laughs> uh, then you'd read prose. Uh, Terence, Plautus, a little bit of Plautus, but mostly Terence and Caesar. Then you'd graduate to Cicero. And then when you had read enough Cicero, uh, you could write poetry. And then you were expected to compose couplets. Mm. And there were a lot of helps, you know, a lot of books and a lot of shortcuts and dictionaries and such that would help you uh, learn how to construe in hexameter primarily, mm-hmm. which is Virgil's um, meter, as we know. Right. Uh, construe things into Latin poetry. Very interesting. And yeah. so there's a lot of stuff like this. Okay. Okay. Translations from Greek into Latin prose and especially poetry. Uh, so this is a poem in um, dactylic hexameter, quoting Gaudio again, with an accompanying English translation in heroic verse. We're doing this on this episode because it stands as the earliest surviving work of poetry about New England and the second oldest poem whose origins can be traced directly to the British American colonies. Wow. So only two copies of this original edition are known to survive. One is held at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. Have you been there? I have, yes. I have not. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I, it was I have not. Impressive, yeah. <laughs> you need to be. You need to get there. Well, I have some friends that live in Pasadena. I'm, I'm quite sure they're listening, and they keep telling me, "Come out here. We'll take you to the Huntington Library." Yes. Yeah. Well, what's stopping you? I don't know. Right. So I got to do this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where one copy is, and the other copy, of course, is housed in the British Museum. Okay. Okay. So the Latin portion is 309 lines. So it's short, right? Right. You could call it almost uh, an apillion. A mini epic. It sounds. That sounds in some ways the opposite of an narration. If narration yes. means to kind of promise to do it all, you're right. This is a 
This is just a few pages. Yeah, hmm. yeah, 309 lines. I mean, it still is quite a bit of effort. I guess um, the shortest book of the Aeneid is still over 600 lines. Right. So it's a pretty good chunk here. Okay. Maybe maybe Morrill just d- d- figure discovered that he couldn't quite uh, um, squeeze out enough epic lines about beavers and, and deer. And <laughs> you're uh, anticipating where we're headed soon. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and as Gaudio says, just to wrap this part up, it praises the geographic features, the flora and the fauna of New England, and spends a majority of its verses describing the Native Americans with awe and curiosity. Fantastic. And that's really interesting, as we'll see when we get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there has been a lot of talk in the last 20 to 30 years about the European exploitation mm-hmm. of uh, Native Americans or Indians, as they were once called. And uh, there's obviously a lot of truth to that. Right. Right. The people who arrived here were not saints. No. Um, but the people who were here were not saints either. Right. Right. It's, right. A, it's a mix of human beings. Uh, but I was really struck by the way Morell. Um, describes uh, the Native Americans that he encountered, whom he calls Indians, right? Mm-hmm. And um, how much uh, almost reverence he has for them. Do you want to jump to that, or you want to want to wait? Well, I think we, we should okay. we should kind of take it through. Um, we should kind of take it through a little bit at a time. Okay. All right. So Jeff, there's a little bit of a preview, mm-hmm. right, that comes before the beginning of the Latin portion of the poem, uh, entitled "Understanding Reader." Yes, and this is written by Morel himself. That's right, right in okay. English. Yes, and uh, I think this is really charming. Can you read some of that? I can. And so, um, uh, listener, bear with me because the you know, the script here has that that you know, odd to my eyes thing. You know, seventeenth uh, century English, right, where the, where the S um, can look like a an F. That's correct. Right. So if I if I flub that, that's what's going on here. And vice verfa. <laughs> Right, right. So Morel writes, When my melancholy leisures first conceived these rude heroics, my conscious muse censured them, too tender-sighted to be admitted to the common light. <laughs> that's a, isn't that a great line? Wow. That is, that's heavy. Yeah. yeah. My melancholy leisures. <laughs> I just imagine Morel, you know, he's kind of... He's kind of a tramping around um, New England. Yeah. He's a little bit bored, right? He's got nothing to do. And he thought, hmm, I should write some poetry, right? But he modestly calls them rude heroics. Yes. Now, he says here, my conscious muse censured them too tender-sighted to be admitted to the common light. Yeah. So it's like I, the muse is kind of, is holding him back at first? or Yes, or, his conscious muse, right? What he thought about, okay, his own sense of criticism. Okay. And I think tender-sighted mm-hmm. here is used in an old-fashioned um, meaning to 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 mean that um, they can't bear up to other people's scrutiny. I see. In other words, when other people look at them, they'll be damaged ah, okay. because they're weak. Gotcha. So not tender-sighted in that they look at things tenderly, but mm. when you look at them, they're fragile. Gotcha. All right, he goes on. Induced by some kind friends who are truly uh, studious of the public good, I was unwillingly willing. <laughs> oh, I like that. I was unwillingly willing to adventure them the public censure, desirous, I ingeniously confess, and so I profess myself ever in my best endeavors to further such royal and religious employments, if my poor judgment can assuredly observe piety to be one prime end of plantation and the undertaking probable to prosper. <laughs> I got to admit, I, he lost me about halfway through there. Right. I, I really love the, uh, I was unwillingly willing. willing. Right. Yeah, I underlined that. So I guess he had some friends who said, no, you got to do this. Right. Okay. And he, he didn't really want to, but he eventually gave in. Okay. Right? All right. To adventure them the public censure. Right. All right. So I'll publish them. I'll put, I'll put this poem out. 
We'll see what happens. I was desirous. I ingeniously confess. And I think ingeniously here means um, not like that's an ingenious idea, mm -hmm. but I um, candidly, right? Ah, I yes. think what it means. And so I profess myself ever in my best endeavors to further such royal and religious employments. Mm. So, yeah. And then I like the way that he, um, he butters up the reader here. Okay. Uh, this is an affectation that's not used much anymore, but he first calls us understanding reader. And then he says, if gentle reader, these lines please thee, peruse and use us gently. If not, Parcavati. Right? That's that our first Latin here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Spare the poet, you know. Cut me a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to go on there? Yeah. It's, you know, it's it, it's a couple of things strike me sure. here. It, um, one that strikes me as, as, in many ways, very British. Yes. You know, just kind of like, like downplaying, you know, uh, downplaying, but kind of advertising your genius, but right. kind of, but downplaying at the right. same time. Right. right. Using really big words mm -hmm. to say that you're a total ignoramus. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah, right. And this also, it reminds me very much of the prologue to Apuleius' Metamorphosis. Oh, does it? Where, where um, Apuleius himself is, is, is basically kind of uh, raising hopes, but also basically saying, don't expect too much, right? right? You know, and uh, and you might. He says something at at one point. You're going to ask yourself, who is that speaking? Like, you know, who is this annoying person buzzing <laughs> in my ear? And then here too is like, you know, if you choose to read this, right. You know, be gentle, right? right? Yeah, um, just forgive the poet, right? So, I like that. So you know that ex libit ligno non fit mercurius, right? Or more Latin, isn't that great? Yes. Uh, from any old block of wood, you can't get a mercury. <laughs> Gotcha. So, uh, you, can't, you can't get blood from a stone? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you can't just choose any old stump and fashion it into a statue of Mercury. Mercury it's right. not going to work. So he's in this metaphor, right? He's the block of wood, so don't expect anything great to emerge. Gotcha. Right. So I'm sure there's a poetic name for this device where you're, you you raise expectations by lowering them. Hmm. I, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But it's, we'll it reminds me of the, of the, you know... Um, you know, a dear reader, I'm not going to talk about, and then you mentioned all these things that the you talked about. Itio. The Praetor Itio. Praetor right? Right. right. Um, so he goes on, besides, error in, in poesy, poetry, yep. is less blemished than in history. Experience cannot plead me ignorant, much less innocent, having seen and suffered. I like that. That's a good sentiment, isn't it? It is. If you make a mistake in error in poetry, right, it's not as bad as making one in history. Mm-hmm. Because if you've actually experienced and seen things, seen and suffered, you got to get your facts right. Right. But there's more latitude in poetry because it's more subjective and, and uh, interpretive. Yes. At least that's how I take it. Yeah. No, I, 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 I hear that too. Mm -hmm. I should delude others, uh, wanna spay with false hope, right. a vain hope, or um, falso gaudio. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Fake, Dis disappointing fake happy right. happiness fake joy yep what can be expected from false relations but unhappy proceedings to the best intended and most hopeful colonies and then maybe just this last one here uh so that want of provisions and right information begets in the distracted planter nothing but mutinies fearful execrations and sometimes miserable interratures sounds terrifying <laughs> my goodness yeah but okay. he, uh, he uses such great language. So, all right. Well, I'm eager to see the the poem that mm -hmm. um, that has been set up, has been buttered up so nicely here. That's correct. And he signs it at the end. Thine, if thy own, W M. All right, William Morrell. Okay. 
All right, so then Morel begins not with a poem proper, but it's a note to the reader. Le- right. Lectori. That's correct. All right. Yep. You want to, uh, and this is hexameter verse? It's, um, or, or is this is, I think this we'll looks see. Uh, It's different. couplets. It's couplets, okay. Yeah, so it's an elegiac couplet. Okay. One line of hexameter and then a pentameter. There right? you go, okay. The, the double hemiepes. You want to read some Latin there? I would love to because this is, this is pretty good Latin. It scans nicely. Okay. So here we go. Condida si placadum deteris philo musa camoinae into a tum tristi. Duca le woman erit. Optima me lifluis modulari, carmina nervis. Illida pa lineis, cantibus elgemelos. Melea coilestest e fundera, carmina munus. Frustra de sico, pumica quiris aquam. Dicera musa probe brebater similordina perga. Gloria summa to be dicera vera vale. Very nice. Yeah. I feel like I'm back in, in uh, Ovid's uh, Ars Amatoria. Yes, right, right, right. But remember, this was written in, 16, published in 1625. Okay, now how does this Latin compare to Aquinas's? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Thomas, don't get me started. See that Thomas couldn't have pulled this off? No, I mean Thomas F- Flynn, oh. our shout-outy. Oh, yes. Okay, yes, okay. Uh, if Thomas Aquinas could pull this off, yeah. he never did. He never did. So yeah. I don't know. But this, this is good. And I tend to think... As I read through it, I didn't read every line uh, of the Latin, mm-hmm. all 309. I probably read maybe a third or so. Um, some of the lines of hexameter are fluid and perfect. Mm. Others, and maybe we'll look at a couple, they're a little clunky. Okay. But uh, it's so, I don't know if I could write one hexameter line. This guy put together 309, but these uh, eight lines of the to the reader, this is really good. Yeah. So I think he probably labored over this maybe more than some of the other lines, knowing that this is the first thing people are going to read. Right. You want to you wanna lead with your best foot. That's right. right? Could you read the translation that he, uh, Morel himself, has provided? So I was just going to ask, so this is Morel's own translation yes. of, of his work. Okay. Yep, that's All right. my understanding. All right. So he translates those lines. Um, Thusly, if thou, Apollo, holdst thy scepter forth to these harsh number, that's thy royal worth. Vain is all search in these to search that vein, whose stately style is great Apollo's strain. Minerva ne'er distilled into my muse her sacred drops. My pumice wants all use. Juice. Is it juice? I think so. Juice wants all juice. My pumice wants all juice. Yeah. So pumice, right, is the stone that you use to scrape away uh, an error in a Ah. um, on parchment or on papyrus, I suppose. This is like the labor limai, right, that uh, Catullus is talking about. Okay. My pumice wants all juice. I guess it means um, he just keeps erasing and erasing. Again, is this kind of a humble brag? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Okay. My muse is plain, concise, her fames to tell. In truth and method, love or leave, farewell. Right. So these are these, um, I mean, my, my, uh, I mean, I kind of stepped on the the rhythm of it but the no last i don't was, think so it's, it's uh, they're, they're yambics right yeah yes. my muse is plain concise her fames to tell right in truth and method love or leave farewell they're rhyming i am yeah right yeah 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 and uh eight um eight lines to represent the eight lines of the couplets right there you go so yep. it's not easy to do it is not and i think he's done pretty well yeah all right well let's dig into the should we get into the main course yes. here okay yeah. so line one Line one. Do you want to read some of the hexameter? Yes, I do. All right. All right. <laughs> the title, Nova Anglia. Nova Anglia. Right? New right. England. New England. He's talking about Massachusetts was where he kind of landed yeah. and spent his time. Plymouth okay. Rock. All right. Hactinus igno tam populisego carmine primos. Te noa de veteri qui contigit Anglia nomen. 
agredi or trepidus pingui celebrare minerva, fermihi numen opem cupienti singula pectro, pandere veridico quae nuper vidimus ipsi. Very nicely done, Jeff. Thank you. Very nice. Very sonorous. Yes. So here's how it goes. Here is the English. And, you know, for the first time in how many episodes... Yeah. I'm not saying, or you're not saying, here's the Lombardo. Yeah. <laughs> this is Morel himself. This is Morel on Morel. That's correct. All right. Fear not, poor muse, cause first to sing her fame. That's yet scarce known, unless by map or name. A grandchild to earth's paradise is born. Well-limbed, well-nerved, fair, rich, sweet, yet forlorn. Thou blessed director, so direct my verse, that it may win her people, friends, commerce. Whilst her sweet air, rich soil, blessed seas, my pen shall blaze and tell the natures of her men. That's that's so nice. That's pretty good English pretty poetry, good. isn't it? It is. It's not bad I like at all. It. Right. I like it quite a bit. Right. And I mean, it's definitely playing into uh, the curiosity back home about this new untouched land. Right. That's right. They're definitely, the language here is very kind of golden age. Right. It's, yes. It's, it's untouched. Right. It's what he, he says: that a grandchild to Earth's paradise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I really like it. And um, a, a scarce known unless by map or name. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it tells us that people in England, they could see the circulating maps. They had heard about it. It's just kind of like a whisper, kind of like a, a rumor. This place, New England. Right. right? But I think that I also sense kind of a, a bit of the, um, maybe not tragedy isn't the right word, but I, the... The idea that um, stepping into this kind of untouched paradise and this un, un you know this unsullied uh, golden age mm-hmm. um, and calling it New England is it's it, it's now forever changed. Oh right? yeah, you can never go back to the its right. pristineness, right? It's imperialism, right? right? Imperialism has come to uh, the continent, yeah. right? And the English, like uh, the other European empires, you know, will wreak havoc on a lot of it. I think do some good things as well, mm-hmm. but it's it's definitely um, never going to be the same, right? Like that great scene in uh, the movie Apocalypto. Have you seen that movie? Apocalypto? Yeah. No, I mean, the, the title itself. Oh, hold on. Okay. What? You haven't seen it? I have not seen it. Oh, let's pause. <laughs> let's pause. Let's write this down. Uh, on this day, mm-hmm. like Thomas Flynn takes notes, you yes. know. On this day, we found a movie that Winkle hasn't seen. That's right, and that you you have seen this. Of course, I have right. seen it. It's, it's pro- I probably saw that title, you know, and it, it steered it, you away. Well, I mean, ap- it took apocalypse and kind of put an O on the yeah, end, it's like so, Racco. All right, all right. <laughs> so it's a 2006 movie. It's described as an epic horror adventure film, oh, okay. which sounds right up your alley. It does sound something I'd like. Yeah, right. So it's about uh, conflict among the Mayans with some of the indigenous peoples, okay. other indigenous peoples in um, the uh, 16th century. Does it does it purport late fifteenth early sixteenth century? Does it purport to tell a true story or is it? It does. Okay. I don't know how much criticism it received, how much liberty was taken, but it purports to tell a true story. Okay. And right at the very end, right at the very end, when all the conflict is resolved or you know the consequences of bad behavior played out, one of the last scenes are three Spanish ships uh, drifting into the harbor uh-huh. near the um, Mayan peoples and their various allies and enemies. It's a, there and goes the neighborhood. Exactly. <laughs> the idea is, oh, like you were saying, this changes everything. Right. Right. For good and bad. Yes. Right. This is it. This is a, a monumental change. It's a classic clash between civilization and nature. Right. And both, um, how both of them kind of carry within them uh, um, kind of beautiful, wonderful things, but also savagery. Right. Yes. Well, and I think it's important to remember, and I'm sure this is what you meant, the Spanish don't merely represent civilization. 
they represent brutality. Right. And the Mayans are a mix of civilization and brutality as well. Right, exactly. And that's a point that the movie makes um, really brilliantly. So you'd recommend it? Uh, it's grim. Oh, it's so bloody. Does Mel play a Mayan? He's not in it at all. Oh, he, he, he just directed, directed it. the film. Gotcha. Yeah, I had to watch much. I have, you know, kind of the tender conscience. I had to watch much of it through my eyes because it's brutal. Really? Gory? But, oh, yeah, yeah. Horribly. I mean, because it, it, it um, you know, it uh, purports to show human sacrifice oh, and yeah. things. Uh, but the story is a good one. Yes. Anyway, a little off course, maybe. But if we can pick up here a little bit at the beginning... Uh, and Morell says, a royal work, well worthy England's king, these natives to true truth and grace to bring. A noble work for all these noble peers, which guide this state in their superior spheres. You holy errands, let your censors near, cease burnt ne'er, cease burning till these men Jehovah fear. Okay, so bring in the gospel. Right, okay. exactly. All right. Yeah. These natives to true great true truth and grace to bring. So remember Morell was a priest. Right, and he's calling upon. Part of his purpose in writing this is to try to rally his fellow Englishmen to engage in their, um, as they saw it, God ordained task of bringing Christianity to this new continent. Right. Okay. And uh, what's interesting to me about this is, of course, um, the poetic art. Right. Poetica art, something like that. Est non omnia dicere. Is you don't say everything. Mm -hmm. Right. You just allude to things. So here, instead of saying explicitly. You, you English uh, Christians, get over here, right? He expresses it poetically. Yes. First in Latin, then in English. and calls them holy errands. Let your censors ne'er cease burning, right? So Morel is uh, to, to, to distinguish him from other um, colonial peoples. He was not a Puritan no. fleeing uh, a, a type of persecution from back home. No. And uh, he kind of freely comes of his own of right. his own accord, and but still sees kind of the, the duty of his civilized country to spread uh, the civilized religion. That's correct. Okay. Christianity. Mm -hmm. All right. Now let's let's uh, let's get into some of Mo uh, Morel's description of the flora and fauna. Of I like that. Noah Ingl Anglica. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So uh, these are the the Latin lines. I'm going to read just a few because it's it's just goes on and on brilliantly, and then maybe you can read some of Morel's translation. Sure. So he says, "His nucleis laute were sutus vescitur indus." His exemptifame segnis nostratibus omni, ducibus his vir res revocantur victibus almae, arboribus di ways vernantibus est quoquitellus, cadris et fagis euglandibus et iovis alta, arbora fraxinea gomosis pinibus alnis, uniparis multis qualiis tum gramen et herbis, pascua quae prebent animalibus unde fugaces. That's the end, pretty much, of the description of the flora. Yes. I mean, one part, and then we're going to get a long, fascinating description of some of the fauna. Right, right, right. Could you read some of the translation there so that people know what we're talking about? Sure. A groundnut there runs on a grassy thread along the shallow earth as in a bed, yellow without thin filmed sweet lily white of strength to feed and cheer the appetite. From these our natures may have great content and good substance when our means is spent. With these the natives uh, do their strength maintain the winter season, which which time they retain their pleasant virtue, but if once the spring return, they are not worth the gathering. All o'er that main the vernant trees abound, where cedar, cypress, spruce, and beech are found, ash, oak, and walnut, pines, and juniper, the hazel, palm, and a hundred more are there. It goes on. And then uh, that's followed up with uh, the list of all the animals. The right? list of all the animals, yeah. right. I think this is so 
charming. Uh, for example, when he's describing these these uh, trees, the cedars and the cypress, the sp the spruce and the beech, he mentions the tall tree of Jupiter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Yoasalta arborea, and then all of the different plants, all of which are, you know, both accurate and they perfectly fit the hexameter line. Right. There's no small accomplishment. Yeah. And I even see in this a bit... Um of uh, that eye for the natural world is you, you see Darwin, you know, mm. a, a, a century or, or two later mm -hmm. uh, comes around and, and um, I mean, not a poet, right. but you know, deeply interested in the intricacies of the natural world. It's already here in, a, in an English right. predecessor. Yep. And of course, as the, uh, the learned listener knows, the names of all of these trees, uh, because they went back and listened to Cowboy Up Verge. Oh, of course they did. Uh, the uh, Virgilian Eclogue and Augustan Literature. Mm -hmm. That was pretty early, like 19, something yeah. like 17, something like that. Filled with the names of trees. That's right. Filled with trees. The Eclogues are stuffed with trees. Yeah. Speaking of stuffed with trees. Is it time? It's time for the ads. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, been in business for 50 years. I think officially this year, this is their 50th anniversary. Um, these guys have been with us from the very beginning, and we are so thankful for having them as a sponsor of this show. Now, Dave, last week, right. I had a limerick oh, man. Uh, for, for Hackett, and I think you promised that you were going to write I one promised. To, in reply. Yes, I make a lot of empty promises, frankly. Yeah. So you don't have one? I do have one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just cranked it out. Okay, what do we got? And let me tell you, it shows. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. If you're in some keen need of books, mm. don't buy them from shrewd, outright crooks. The good folks at Hackett have all that you lack it. Make up for your plain, crummy looks. Very nice. I like that. You, you just cranked that out. I just cranked it out. Man, not bad. 90 seconds of work. Let's take it apart, though. Okay. In the interest of selling books for Hackett, yes. let's deconstruct this um, terrible limerick. Okay, let's do it. Okay. If you're in some keen need of books, okay. it checks out. Yep. Don't buy them from shrewd, outright crooks. Good advice. Yeah, but I mean, I don't have any particular bookseller in mind. I wouldn't call them. But anyway. No, it's, it's a good thing to avoid, though. It is hyperbole for the sake of the limerick. Right. The good folks at Hackett, well, that works because yeah. we say that all the time. Here it goes off the rails. Mm -hmm. Have all that you lack it. Well, you know, th that's very Seussian, right? You, you, we all know what you're saying, but you've twisted it in a way that makes it fun and funny. Really? Yes. Lack it? What does that mean? And we know what you mean, but it doesn't have to make sense. Okay. Yeah. And then the last line is yeah. where it really goes off the rails. Okay. Make up for your plain, crummy looks. So you're insulting I'm them. insulting the audience. <laughs> <laughs> if you buy enough books, but you're ugly. It'll make up for your... It'll make up for yeah, it. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. yeah. So maybe maybe a little... What do you give me, a B minus on that? A little needlessly cruel in the last needlessly line. Needlessly cruel. Right. I was under a lot of pressure. For, for coming up with that in like in uh, 30 seconds, that's not bad at all. Yeah. It so. doesn't hold a candle to yours last well, week, let's well, just say. Well, thank you. I had more time to, uh, to, that's true. to put into it. Right. But what about the listener who wants to buy some books from well, Hackett? Jeff. If they go to hackettpublishing.com, um, you can check out their huge catalog. Um, they have a whole um, raft of, of translations from the from the classics, um, books on philosophy, books on on Asian history, on is the Islamic tradition. Uh, it's a massive catalog. Um, you've heard, if you've been listening to the program, you know that um, we love their we love their translations. We use them. Uh, we've been using the Lombardo translation um, as well as others in talking about about Virgil. Um, and so, if you want to take advantage of all they have to offer, go to hackapublishing.com. Find the book that you want, put them in the little satchel, and what's our coupon code? The coupon code is AN and then the current year, which is, let's see, hmm. 2022. 2022, and uh, that will get you 
two wonderful things that'll get you 20% off your entire order and free shipping. And folks, this is the way to make up for your plain crummy looks. This'll do it. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Jeff. Yeah? Yes. Just checking if that's still your name. (laughs) Out in Portland, Oregon, our good friend, the fabulous entrepreneur, decided that there was enough mass-produced coffee, and Mm -hmm. he said, how can I improve the home coffee-making machine? And he invented, developed the Ratio 8. This is an automatic pour-over machine, which is a beautiful and functional, delivering delicious coffee every day. Yes, and an elegant package. It's a, like like you alluded to. It's a they are works of art in and right. of themselves. Now, Dave, wait a minute. Yeah. Do you know why I made that intro so long? Why? Because I was afraid you were going to ask me about another limerick. Uh, it would, I, I suppose, is it too much to ask? Do you have a limerick for this ad as well? I have one. All right. Yes. And yeah. this took me a good 75 seconds. How, Just, you, fe- how are you feeling about this It's one? awful. Okay, all right. <laughs> Just a moment ago because uh, I remembered, oh no, here you go. I know a swell gal who brews coffee. She serves it with cream, not too frothy. The ratio's her fave. It's brew she doth crave. And for rhyming, I've only got toffee. <laughs> So the, again, in the last line, you you kind of throw it away a little bit. Well, I, right? I didn't yeah. have enough time. Right, right. Can you rhyme something with coffee and frothy? frothy it's 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 hard, right? Yes, especially in, under a under a, a deadline. That's right. right. All I could think of was toffee, oh, yeah. and the, I mean it doesn't really go anywhere. <laughs> right. I hate toffee, by the way. I, I hate toffee too. Now I love my grandparents, mm-hmm. and uh, one of their favorite. Uh, they're both deceased on the one side. One of their favorite candies was toffee. It was an old-fashioned kind of thing. They always have a little glass Correct. dish, right? Yes, yeah. it was wrapped up in that terrible foil you can never get open. Yeah, exactly. And I loved them so much, and they always gave me candy so sweet. And I, so I suffered through a lot of toffee for love of them, but it's not a good flavor. It's not. Exactly. You never said, hey, hey Grandma, how about... Uh how about some like uh, some uh, Starburst or some Sprees or something? Right? No, just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were other kinds of candies, but there was always toffee. Always toffee, mm-hmm. right? But so, we're, we're talking about ratio, though. Maybe. Right? Right? Do, you, do you want to break down your poem? Yeah, I or, do. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the first two lines: I know a swell gal who brews coffee. She serves it with cream, and not too frothy. Now, are you thinking of any particular person in mind? No. Or just no. Your, this okay. is a generic, uh, you know, Jane Six Brew. Gotcha. Um, but if the if the listener is careful, they know that way back when. When we had another sponsor, mm. we read a couple of poems like this, and I have recycled these two lines. Oh, really? Yeah, you didn't recognize I them? Di- I didn't. Oh, come on. Yeah. But I changed the gender to throw the listener off the scent. This okay. time it's a swell gal. Uh, the two middle lines, not too bad. The ratio's her fave, mm-hmm. right? If you can't get the whole word into the line, you know, cut it up. That exactly, works. right. Uh, it's brew she doth crave. Mm-hmm. You might wonder, why did I put the doth in there? Because it's funny. I was trying to add some, you know, grandeur to it, like Morel does. You're trying, you're, you're trying to raise the, raise yes, the, the tenor to of up it. the ante. Got you. Okay. And then, uh, like you said, the last line. What was it again? I want to hear. And it. for rhyming, yeah, I've only got toffee. <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to insult the audience in the last line, like I did in the previous limerick. Yeah, I got you. Um, but uh, you, you, I think I think you insulted all of us with okay. that last line. <laughs> So let's say, Jeff, <laughs> yes. that the listener wants to buy one of these coffee machines yeah. if for no other reason than to end this terrible yes. ad segment. Right. What do they need to do? Yes. Yeah, so if you want to get the, the ratio six or the ratio eight, you go to ratiocoffee.com. Um, you choose the machine that you want, drop it in the, in the, in the box. And if you use this coupon code, A-N-C-O, ad nauseum coffee, 7B, A-N-C-O-7B, 
That's a code that's good through uh, November 30th. That's correct. And, and the B is for Brackish. The B is for Brackish, yes. And that will get you 15% off your entire order. That's right. Check it out. So, Dave, as we get back into it, we got to go from the flora now, now to the fauna. That's right. All right. So what do we got? Well, let me read a little bit of Latin. Would that be okay? Yes. All right. This goes, Pinguescunt kirwi wilpace ursique lupique, linkes et fibri musci lutraque politae, pelibus eximii pratii volucresque saporis, perplacidi variae pelique gruesque palumbes, megilis et facianis anascignis iois ales, penelopes que columbae perdix acipitresque. Maybe I can blame Morel there. That's one of those lines, unless I've messed up terribly, not as smooth as some of the others. That last one, a yes. bit of a clunker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But the next one comes back in full force. Okay. Et capitoli e aves variae tum carnisopora tum penis placidetecarantibus arta canautas. And that's great. And that's that's smooth as butter. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah. I like in one of those first lines that you that you read where it ends or sukwa lupuqua. Yes. Right. So bears and wolves. Yes, that's uh, right. Oh my. Internal rhyme. Yeah. yeah. That's great. You want to read us some of uh, Morel's own translation? Sure. So let me see. Let me just pick the spot here. So there's mm-hmm. grass and herbs contenting man and beast, on which both deer and bears and wolves do feast. Foxes both gray and black, though black I never beheld. Well, how does he know then? People have told him. Oh, okay. Maybe right. the natives. Okay. Right. With muskets and link- lynx and otter and bever. Beaver. Beaver. Um, but, oh, you were trying to say... Bever, he because it, it rhymes with never. Never, that's a yeah. Bever. This guy should write limericks. He should <laughs> toffee <laughs> with many other which I here omit, fit for to warm us and to feed us fit. Oh, I like that, that. Nice. That's great. Fit for to warm us and to feed, feed us, us fit. fit. Yeah, the fowls that in those bays and harbors feed, though in their seasons they do do elsewhere breed, are swans and geese. Heron, pheasants, duck, and crane, culvers and divers all along the main, the turtle, eagle, partridge, and the quail, not plover pigeons, which doe never fail till summer's heat commends them to retire, and winter's cold begets their old desire. Yeah, mm. isn't that nice? That's really nice. That's it's really incredible. It just kind of, that all those those names is just kind of rapid fire. I think part of it is is to kind of overwhelm you with the variety and, Absolutely. and wonder, right? Right. Yeah. Yep, it was an enormous and massive continent, still is, massive continent. But mm-hmm. to these Europeans, they'd never seen anything like this. Right. Like, Europe was so old. And uh, apparently, this is what I was told as a kid, maybe you heard this, that uh, when the Europeans arrived, a squirrel could go from the East Coast all the way to California in treetops. Without touching the ground. Yeah. Oh, I'd never heard that that stat. That's, right. That's, that's interesting. I yeah. just know that that would be one tired squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it also I, it reminds me of um uh you know Virgil's Georgics right but also kind of the sentiment of we have Virgil imagine him the kind of the poet in the city idealizing the countryside right, right? um but here we have um an Oxford man mm-hmm. um here actually out in the countryside right. with his eyes kind of bug-eyed at all that he sees right yep. and apparently um you know uh me- former member of a failed colony right yeah uh, Wasagusset, I think, is what the, right. na- the name of it was. It didn't even last a year, right? No, uh, yeah. no. So this is not your kind of an armchair poet, right, in his ivory tower, you know, pontificating about things he's only heard by report. Right. This guy's out tramping the woods. Yes. Been there. He's the real deal. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was, I was talking in my, in my class the other day about, you know, that um, the noble, noble savage mm-hmm. trope, and a lot of that uh, um, 
comes from or is pinned on Alexander the Pope. Okay. Um, which seems to me be the, the kind of poet of the city that didn't maybe do much tramping out in the wilderness. And so right. I think Morrill got has him, he one-ups Pope here is that he's he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. He's not just kind of imagining these things. He's out there seeing it and talking to people and living it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And he manages to get into his poetry uh, further on, oysters, crawfish, crab, and lobsters great in great abundance when the seas retreat. So now he's got his, he's got his pants rolled up. He's wading right. out into, into the brine. Tortoise and herring, turbot, hack, and bass with other small fish and fresh bleeding place. The mighty whale doth in these harbors lie, whose oil the careful merchant deer will buy, besides all these and others in this main. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. And uh, finishes up with the flora and the fauna. Yes. And then starts talking about the natives. Yes. Who he respects and is fascinated by. You want to take us there? Yeah. So let's uh, read a little bit of the Latin here, where he's starting to talk about the way they dress, what they wear, some of their habits and customs and so forth. Okay. And uh, I'll read a little bit of the Latin, and then we'll get the translation again. So um, kind of beginning in midstream a little bit. Austeri resus queparum sa viqua superbi, constricto nodis hirsuto crinis sinistro, imparibus formis tondentes, ordina willos, malia magnanimae peragentes utiagentes, arta sagitifera polentes, crisibus armis. All right, and he translates thus. Whose hair is cut with greases, yet a lock is left, the left side bound up in a knot. Their males small labor but great pleasure know, who nimbly and expertly draw the bow, Trained up to suffer cruel heat and cold, or what attempt so e'er may make them bold, of body straight, tall, strong, mantled in skin, of beer or deer or beaver, with the hair side in. Hmm. So he's definitely he's fascinated by these right. by these natives. Unfamiliar dress, mm-hmm. unfamiliar appearance. It's quite similar to the way that Herodotus, in his book on the Scythians. Right, which I think is maybe book four of the histories. Mm-hmm. He talks about the Scythians, which is modern day um, Southwest Russia, right, right, Ukraine, that area, kind of, uh, and the way that they, you know, they're on horseback and they live a nomadic lifestyle. They have unfamiliar dress and unfamiliar customs. I think this probably has to be in the back of Morel's mind as he's describing these strange people he's never encountered. Right, right. But at the same time, given what we read earlier too, he's also saying that these are. Um, Heathens to be converted. That's true. At the same time. Yeah, but I would say in a in a in a pretty compassionate way. Yeah. I guess I suppose it all comes down to whether you think that um, converting from one religion to the next, you know, is a legitimate and worthwhile thing. Right. And and if persons should try to persuade others, right? Right. This wasn't always persuasion. I mean, I think it was on Morel's part. There was force used. Sure. Um, but Morel's talking about something a little bit different. Yeah. It seems. You know, it's interesting. Um, I talk about this in my film class. So we talk about like, the history of the Western um, in American film. And if you look at the very beginnings of uh, American cinema, you know, some of the very first uh, films were these Westerns. And invariably, in these early silent films, you have the cowboys who are the agents of civilization you know, right. facing the dangerous frontier. And the natives are the war-whooping savages that need to be tamed, um, uh, you know, killed or converted. Right, and then as you kind of go through the the history of cinema up to the present day, that has kind of turned 180 degrees. Right, it's where, the opposite. It's the opposite now. Where you see, if you see the you know, the cowboys or the you know the the, the colonialists, they are the ones who are the, the danger. Right, and they are intruding upon 
these kind of these golden age figures who just you know who live close to nature and therefore inherently moral. Right, like right. the famous Kevin Costner film Dances with Stereotypes. It, exactly, right. It's a classic example of that where he his character ends up you know going native, right, because that's the moral thing to do. Right, and he leaves behind um, the cruel butchery of exactly of everything that he represented at the beginning. Right, you see it all over the place. I mean, that's basically the story of, of films like Avatar. Right, right, and but it seems like so and, to, and Avatar too. Is, is that coming out? Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. You haven't bought tickets yet? No, that's not my thing. Okay. Yeah, but more to y- pl- yet another movie you haven't seen. I saw Avatar. Okay, I, I, <laughs> and that's why I'm not going to see Avatar too. All right. But to place Morel into this whole schema, he's kind of he's 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 more balanced there. I think so. Right. So he recognizes the 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 worth and value of the civilization that he comes from, while also kind of admiring the the um the exotic the exoticism and kind of inherent purity mm-hmm. of of these of these people they live in that in and close to that nature that um that uh, multivarious uh, uh, detailed nature that he just went spent all these lines talking about right 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 all right let's um let's pivot over to where he talks about how their society is structured okay right and uh, i'm going to read a couple of lines of latin and uh, the listener should be aware that one of the really interesting things morel does is he describes customs that have no clear equivalent in his vocabulary using the vocabulary that he has at his disposal. Mm. It's kind of the same way that Julius Caesar, right, in De Bello Gallico, is describing all of the tribes that he encountered in France. Right. And he's got to use Roman terminology, because that's all he has, yes. to describe their various habits. All right. So it goes like this. Rex tenet imperium poinaset primio cunctis constituit da urisenes viduasque papillos, et miseros curat peregrinos moliter omnes, excipit hospitio semper tamen inde tributi. All right. So I think it's um, their kingdoms, maybe? Is that? Their kingdoms, yes. Okay. Their kingdoms as their kings of high degrees. Their kings give laws, rewards to those they give, that in good order and high service live. The aged widow and the orphans all, their kings maintain, and strangers when they call, they entertain with kind salute for which, in homage, they have part of what's of what's most rich. Very nicely done. So he's using the the, the, the language of, of kings and kingdoms. That's right. To de- describe um, the chiefs of the tribes and, right. how, and how they run right. things. Yes. Whoever the head man was. Yeah. And did you catch the Zania reference there? Well, I, I missed it. Where? Yeah. The aged widow and the orphans all, ah. their kings maintain. And, and strangers when they call. That's right. Yes. So uh, Morel, right, familiar with Zania from his reading of the Odyssey and many, many other places in Greco-Roman lit. What does he see in this culture? He sees a, a similar kind of thing. That's correct. Let me just read those last two lines again, because now that you mentioned Zania, they, they hit me um, more, um, more closely. They entertain with kind salute for which... In homage, they have part of what's most rich. So they, they, strangers come and they give them... The best part. The best. Yeah. Right. So yeah. when a stranger comes knocking at your door, what's the typical fare? I'm always suspicious because I think they're, one, they're trying to sell me something. Right. Or they're going to try to have, try to sign some kind of petition. Mm. Right. Yeah. So I, my house is not very Zania-ish. Right. <laughs> 10, 12 years ago, maybe, when I lived in a different neighborhood, yeah. young man showed up at the door and um, asked me for a drink. Appeared like he was selling something, but he just said, I'm so thirsty. Can I have a drink? 
And uh, so I gave the young man a soda. Did you let him inside? Did you say, I'm bringing the soda to the porch? I brought it to the door. I was, okay. I was careful, right? right? I mean, I've got children in the house. It's a complete stranger. Right. But it was hot, right? And the guy was going around the neighborhood selling something. Mm-hmm. When he came to my door, he wasn't selling anything. He just asked for, you know, can I, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink? And, right. Uh, so that was very interesting because that's the only time that's ever happened to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, you read things in the papers, you hear stories about persons, you know, who are kind of exploited for selling stuff. Yeah. And I wondered, is this one of those persons? Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I gave him a Sprite. Well, I mean, you, you did, you, um, you did your Zania duty there. You think so? I think so. Could I be a native chieftain? I think much more so than I could, right? <laughs> you know, what's really interesting about this is, you know, in, so in, in some of the, you know, the, the stories about, you know, the clash between the, um, the colonial powers and the native peoples, um, you know, one of the stories that, that I've heard is that um, the, the, um, the colonials take advantage of the docile nature of these of these tribes, right. they, they take advantage of this very thing that Morales is talking about. That yeah, you know, come on in, you know, we'll give you we'll give you the best, and they kind of use that to to steamroll them. Right. Um, but then you also then also as, as I was talking about in like those early Hollywood movies, you also get the uh, the stereotype of the the dangerous savage. Right. right? And I, but I think there's I mean you, you always run into a danger when you start talking in generalities and you're talking you kind of paint with a broad brush. But I think there is a sense that. Um, you know, different tribes, different native tribes had their own kind of personalities as right. well. Right. So, you know, the Apache are remembered as a more warlike tribe. Oh, yeah. Heroic. And, and some, and, or, the, or the Iroquois. Right. Or, and some of these maybe more Eastern tribes that the, co- the colonials uh, came into contact uh, first were more of kind of the, 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 the docile kind right. of agricultural right. uh, type of tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you see that you see that that kind of full spectrum here. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, I mean, I think there's probably definitely some truth in that. You know, right. you hear the story of you know how you know Manhattan Island was bought, you know, by the Dutch for traded for beads for trinkets, right? Yeah, and supposedly kind of just taking taking advantage of of a people that didn't um, didn't really know what what hand they were being dealt. Sure. Yeah. And we're using very unfamiliar customs. Yeah. Right. So you know, can we use this? Well, what are they going to do with it? Right. There wasn't the I, it wasn't the understanding of what that all entailed. Exactly. Exclusion necessarily right. and um, transformation of it into something completely different. Exactly. I, I assume there was no clear understanding of that. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that's often kind of an aspect that's not often brought into this conversation is this um, it, not so much of kind of a, a sinister um, um, uh, exploitation of one side over the other. It, definitely some of that, but this idea—you have these two cultures that are so radically different. Right. When you have the, the, the these guys from England coming in and talking about you know uh, notions of private property. Right. Hundreds and, of years of detailed contract law. Exactly. Right. And taxes and ownership and um and uh, you know capital and labor. Right. These are concepts just completely foreign mm-hmm. uh, to these tribal peoples. And although so the, I assume the concept of property was familiar to tribal peoples, but not in the same way. Not not in the same way. Not in terms of like, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna draw up and, and divide up this acreage in this, right. in these measurements, right? Right. Um but I think that's often kind of uh, a, a, an aspect that's often kind of um you know lost in, in the mix of that conversation. Definitely. Yeah. 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 So as we start to wind down here a little mm-hmm. bit, I wanna look at just a couple more uh, segments here which characterize some of the society of the indigenous peoples. Yeah as presented by Morel in this brilliant Latin poem. Yes. Uh, and so I want to pick it up here where he's talking about uh, some of the customs for the very lowest class in this particular uh, Native American society. Okay. So I'll read a few lines here, um, which start out, 
like this, uh, instar servor rum quacunque subire parati, ardua consilii subiecti foimina fumus, indicus ad certos inhibeteret omnibus annos, postia liberior concesse potentia cunctis, connubio multas sibi conjunxisse maritas. All right. All right. And so, uh, Morals English translation. The lowest people are as servants are, which do themselves for each command prepare. They may not marry nor tobacco use till certain years, least they themselves abuse, at which years to each one is granted leave, a wife or two or more for to receive. Hmm. So two interesting practices, I guess three. Uh, the one is, he says, the lowest people are as servants are. So that's in star servorum in the Latin. They serve in place of slaves, mm. really, or... Um, hired help. They can't get married and they can't use tobacco. Yeah. Uh, the Latin here is fumus. So smoke is forbidden to them um, until they reach certain years so they don't hurt themselves, according to the, you know, the translation. For their least. own good. Right. Lest they themselves abuse. And then at which years to each one is granted leave. When you reach a certain age, you can take a wife or two or more, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, polygamy. Yes. And what does he go on to say about um, what this arrangement supposedly entails? So he says, by having many wives, two things they have, first children, which before all things to save, they covet, caused by them their kingdoms um, sealed. Filled, I think it is. Filled, sorry. Um, When as by fate or armies, their lives are spilled. Right. Fascinating, huh? Okay. It's interesting. He, he, um, um, He refers to, yeah, polygamy here. But doesn't bring in any kind of, um, kind of moral judgment to bear. No, right? No. He seems maybe a little shocked that they can't smoke. Right. Right. Until uh, they reach a certain. Until age. they reach a certain age. Right. Right. So, um, but I, I almost anticipates um, you still have to be. How old do you have to be to buy a pack of cigarettes? I'm not a smoker, but uh, you, you have to be. I think it was recently moved to 21. Is it 21? I think so. Okay. It was raised to the same age as alcohol. So, I'm guessing these tribe, the tribal peoples, you you could probably you could probably pick up the pipe. Uh, a bit before 21. Yeah, I imagine. Right. It doesn't seem especially right. uh, early. but So, yeah, he, I mean, here he, it's um, his description, I, I read as more kind of its fascination more than than I don't see any kind of condemnation Censure, here. no. Yeah, yeah, right. No. Well, do we want to fast forward to the end now? Okay. I, I think that probably one episode is pretty much going to cover it unless we want to go back and focus on, you know, a, a particular element in the poem. Which I find, frankly, fascinating. It's really interesting stuff, yeah. Uh, because, as we've been saying, this gentleman is taking an eyewitness look, you know, using the tools of a very ancient language, borrowing themes and words and expressions from Virgil, Apuleius, Lucretius. Uh, the Lucretian um, homage that I mentioned earlier is the frugiferae, right? The um, the fruit-bearing trees, the frugiferae, this uh, frugiferentes. This is a, a Lucretian neologism. And Morel finds a way to sneak that in. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's jump to the end. You have, okay. a, you have a passage in mind? Yeah, so just basically the last, um, I don't know, the last 10 lines or so, just read a little bit, because I think it ends on a really nice note. All right. So he says, Si mea barbaracai prosint conamina genti, si valet anglicanis in compte placere poesis, et sibi per facales hacerere gente potentes, Asida vos quepios sibi persuadera colonos, si doceat primivitam victuquam parentis, angli si fuerent indis, exempla beati, we wendi capiant quibus ardua limina coili. And then the last two lines I did not read, but let's take a look at the uh, English translation there. All right. 
If these poor lines may win this country love, our kind compassion in the English move, persuade our mighty and renowned state, this poor blind people to commiserate, or painful men to this good land invite, whose holy works these natives may enlight. If heavens grant these to see here built, I trust, an English kingdom from this Indian dust. Interesting. A mix of things, wouldn't you yeah, say? A mix of things. And even that last line there, a balance, an English kingdom built with from the Indian soil. Yeah. 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 I like the way he says, uh, if my poor lines may win this country love or kind compassion in the English move. So although I think that the English, like most of the European uh, colonializers, right, colonizers, went on to do many terrible things, mm-hmm. it's not the case that from the beginning all of them had completely wicked motives. Right. Here he's saying, I, I want to move them to compassion and have have pity, have mercy, commiserate. Right. right. Come to help this poor blind people. Well, you know, were they poor blind? Maybe in some respects, but certainly not that that's not how they saw themselves. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And it's also striking uh, given that we know that he was part of a, uh, a colony that um, fell apart, right. at least in part due to tensions with the local Yes. Natives, right. And so yeah. here he's still kind of, is, he's, he's, um, he's saying to his countrymen, uh, take pity. Right. Yeah. Um, see them as, as, as human. As persons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love this archaic use of the word painful here, right? Or painful men to this good land invite, which means men that are willing to take pains, right? Right. Men that are long suffering. Yes. Cause exactly. it's, it's bad here, but if you come here, you know, you can maybe bring some education and uh, build an English kingdom. Yes. All right. So yeah. you think anybody listening is going to think, ah, oh, these these ad nauseum guys, this is just kind of an apology for imperialism. That, I don't that's think... That's what they're They're carrying water for imperialism. If they if they listen to the last hour, I don't think they should come away with that at all. Right? Okay, so what would I, you say to someone who would say, you know, you guys are you're valorizing this poem because you love Latin, but this is a brutal business and you're just kind of glossing over it. I don't think we glossed over it at all. I think okay. we, I think we um, at many points said... That um, it was this the the colonial um, experiment right. was fraught with with uh, with highs and lows right. alike right okay. right and and to see Morel positioned in this as someone who's kind of trying to balance both sides mm-hmm. in a way that I think is often not broadened to that conversation right yeah okay so, so hats off to Mr Morel all right say. yeah. And uh, for those of you who like this uh, poem, right, you can easily find it, right? In fact, send Jeff or I and Jeff or me an email, and uh, I'll be glad to email it to you. It's yeah. a, it's in the public domain. That's where I found it. 309 lines of gorgeous Latin and a very serviceable translation by the author himself. Very good. Hey, we're up against the clock. Oh, we are. We got to right. get out of here. We got right. turkey to stuff. Oh, we have man. gravy to stir. What we, else do we got to we do? Have, we have um, awful relatives to kind of brace ourselves. Oh, for come on. Con- no. We no, got no. pumpkins to pie, cranberries yeah. to sauce. Yeah. Did you just use pie as a verb? I tried to. Okay, I like that. All yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to go on. It right? is, yes. But in the, in the immediate right now, we have some, we got some business to cover. Yes. Right? So um, before we get out of here, Dave, you want to talk to us about- Well, uh, I'm still on a vein here. Your, uh, what? The moon on the crust of the new fallen pie. <laughs> I think you got to let it go. All right. All right. You want to tell us about a little bit about the Moss Method? I do. Okay. Yeah, coming up, right? This Friday is the fabulous, what you like so much. Oh, I love this part. The Black Friday Monsai. The Black Friday Monsai. Yeah, Black you... Friday, Cyber Monday. Yeah, but I had to switch to the last two to make it rhymey. It, it, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, you're as we saw with your limericks, you're very good at that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. So here's what we're offering. Yeah. If you want to sign up for the Moss Method, you can get 10% off. 
So the regular two, uh, $325 comes down to $292.50. Fantastic. And this will be open from uh, 1124, Thursday the 24th, from 12.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to Monday, November 28th at 11.59 p.m. Okay. Shut it down right then. Okay, so they got a small window. That small window. It's Mm -hmm. about, I don't know, it's five days maybe. Uh, Get in there and get your 10% off the Moss Method for Greek. Take you from? Uh, Neophyte to Erudite. That's correct, right. And if you want to study Latin with me, it's the LLPSI course, Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, latinperdiem.com. And uh, 10% off, 10% off the $199, $199, so that takes you down to $179, and after the sale, what's the bad news, Jeff? Well, after the sale, that goes back, the price goes way back up again. No, not just back up to the but, original, but it's going above the current price. Oh, I see. Because the course is finished. Ah. 33 jam-packed videos, tons of information for Latin teachers especially. Yeah. If you're teaching from the Orberg book, this is going to give you so much help. Fantastic. It's going to go up to $250. Ah, okay. So this is your last chance. You better jump in soon, I would say. Get in. All right. And we got some people to thank. Yes, we do. Mishka, as right. always, our, our wonderful engineer. Yes. Um, She's going to turn this one around in record time. We got to get it out for the Before holiday. Before you can say green bean casserole, <laughs> she's going to have this one done. Thanks, as always, to Scott Vincent and Ken Templin for the great music that you hear throughout the podcast. Um, if you want to be, if you want to one up Tom Thomas Flynn, right, and you want to shout out, yes. you want to give us ideas for for episodes, and and I got to tell you, that's going to be difficult. Because Mr. Flynn sent us, I think, about six pages. No joke. It is. Yeah, exactly. So you got your work cut out. For That's you. right. Or if you just want to send us a short paragraph. Yeah, say, we'd, have, we'd be happy with that. We'd love to mention your name. Tell us how you're kind of keeping the, the torch alive. That's right. Um, and you can do that to write to, uh, to Dave at Dave at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or send it to Jeff at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Jeff, did you want to share some of the handy Latin phrases for Thanksgiving you let, put together? Let me just give a couple. These are here. excellent. Okay, I really like these. So um, this is for you know, at the table, and you want to right. break out some Latin. I, I thought some uh, Thanksgiving-themed phrases you right. would see. Uh, one would be, da mihi garum. Da mihi garum. What's would, that? Could roughly uh, pass the gravy. Pass the gravy. Right, give me the... So garum was this, uh, this awful fish sauce that the Romans Fermented put, fish sauce. Put on everything. So yes. give Oof. to me the fish sauce. Um, I, uh, how about this one? Uh, uh, you could so you could whisper to the the person next to you, uh, quis con sobrinum Leonardo invitavit? Like, <laughs> who invited cousin Lenny? <laughs> That's great. All right. That's great. And then maybe one more here. Nil mihi refert quid nomen eides caro, which is roughly, I don't care what you call it. That ain't me. <laughs> That's great. Uh, that's good. And Dave, Very you, got, nice. you got the gustatory parting shot? Yeah, but I want to say something else real okay, quick before please. the gustatory parting shot. Yep. Uh, that little bit of Latin that you shared with us there so brilliantly. That's like an Easter egg, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean? Yeah. How they put Easter eggs in movies. Yes, and I got you. Oh, okay, yeah, all yeah. right. It's a pop culture <laughs> reference, Johnny Pop. And uh, so the people who've been listening to the end, right, once we get to the end of the content, they, okay, this is just the typical blather. No. No. We're rewarding you for hanging in there. Exactly. See what you got? All right. Now the gustatory parting shot. Yes. This comes from uh, Jimmy Fallon, some kind of late night guy. Yeah, he used to be on SNL. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Not a fan, but I love this quote. A new survey found that 80% of men claim they help cook Thanksgiving dinner, which makes sense when you hear them consider saying, that smells good to be helping. <laughs> Not bad, Jimmy. Is that you? That, no, me, I, no, I get in there. You do? Exactly. No, I'm, that's me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a cook, yeah. Oh, that's me. I, I come up and say, hey, can I help with dinner? Mm, that smells, smells good. good. That's it, my contribution. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.